Again, this second law, Moses repeating the whole law a second time for this new generation of Israelites that are about to enter into the promised land, go over the Jordan, and finally take in all the promises of this promised land that God has for them. Tonight, what we're going to see is Moses, he's going to go over the dietary laws for the Israelites, what's clean and what's unclean. He's also going to speak about how they are to mourn death, and he's going to speak about tithing. So let's just dive in here. Verse 1 and 2, he says, You are the children of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves, nor shave the front of your heads for the dead, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God, And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord starts out, the the basis for all of these laws is based upon being adopted into the family of God. The Lord says, hey, you are my children, and as my children, you are to do everything in this life differently than the Gentiles, than the people that are not mine, the people that do not belong to me. I hope for the parents here, there are certain things that you tell your kids, we, right, insert your last name, this is what we do. This is who we are. We are tough. We are hard workers. We finish things. We accomplish tasks. This is who we are. This is what Vasquez's do. And God, this is what he's telling his sons and daughters, you are my sons and daughters, and this is the way that we will conduct ourselves. He tells them, you shall not cut yourselves nor shave the front of your head for the dead. As children of the Lord, everything we do in life should be different than the world around us, but especially our outlook when it comes to life and death and eternity. What's your outlook when it comes to life and death and eternity. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 and 14, Paul tells the church, I do not want you to be ignorant brethren concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. It's like when Jesus goes into the home of the little girl that has died and he tells those professional mourners, he says, don't worry, she's just sleeping. And they all begin to mock him. That's the way we are to look at death for our loved ones that have a relationship with Jesus Christ. We're going to see them once again. They're going to, or we're going to wake up with them once again. They're awake right now. They're in heaven rejoicing in streets of gold. Be praying for Lewis and Terry. Lewis's mom passed away suddenly today, so be praying for them. But our outlook on life and death, it should be different. It needs to be different for us as believers. Do you mourn just like an unbeliever? Do you get bitter with God just like an unbeliever? Or do you see it? For what it is, we are all just pilgrims passing through. And God is the one that knows the day we're all going to be born and the day we're all going to die. And I can't wait to see my king face to face. Are we ready for those things? God has called us to be different in this world. We as believers, we are his sons and daughters. 
And we are also chosen. We are called to be holy. You can turn to 1 Peter. Peter mentions this twice. And if we're honest, was there any, who was the least holy disciple? Consider that. Who's lopping off people's ears? Who's cursing little girls in, uh, by the fire of the enemy? Peter's the one doing all of these different things. Peter's getting called Satan, get thee behind me. And yet notice what Peter writes for us even today. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 through 16, and how the battle always begins in our mind. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Family, can we say all of our conduct is holy and set apart? The way we treat our spouse, the way we treat our kids, our work ethic, on the job place. Can we say our mind and what goes in our mind? Can we say our thought process, our mindset is holy as he is holy? Can we say our internet browsing is all holy? Are, are the movies we watch, the music we listen to, be holy in all your conduct because we are obedient children and we are no longer conforming ourselves to our former lusts. We were once obedient to this old man, this old person. But now that we got adopted into the family of God, we're called to act like our father. We can turn to the next chapter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 through 10. We spoke about how we're obedient children, we're adopted into the family of God. And now he continues the same idea in verse 9 of chapter 2. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, his holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. We're called to be different. We're called to act differently. In this time period, for God's people, it was that they were not allowed to shave the front of their heads or to cut themselves whenever someone passed away. Do we apply this to ourselves today? Then everybody would have to be spotting their unibrow, right? No shaving your foreheads, right? Ladies, I'm sorry. To be biblical, you got to let that uni grow, right? Not at all. This, this is not what's applicable to us today. However, I do believe we can take the command to not cut ourselves as God saying self-harm is not allowed within the family of God. And if you're struggling with that, if you're young or if you're old and you're struggling with cutting yourselves, inflicting physical pain on your body because you're going through spiritual or emotional pain, I encourage you to lay those burdens at the feet of Christ. That's not what he wants you to go through. And in this time period, unbelievers and the Gentiles, they would inflict 
physical harm on themselves as they would go through the funerals of their loved ones. They would shave the front of their heads for the dead. And God tells them, you are my children and you are holy and you are not to act like them. The next way that they're going to show that they're different, back to Deuteronomy chapter 14, is in their diet. Their very diet would reveal to the unbeliever that they were different. You'd get to their house and open the refrigerator and you'd be able to see these people are different. You'd be able to sit down at a meal with them and you would be able to see these people are different. Verse 3 through 8, it says, You shall not eat any detestable thing. These are the animals which you may eat, the ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roe deer, the wild goat, the mountain goat, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. And you may eat every animal with cloven hooves, having the hoof split in two parts, and that chews the cud among the animals. Nevertheless, of those that chew the cud or have cloven hooves, you shall not eat. Such as these, the camel, the hare, the rock hyrax, which is a coney or a badger. For they chew the cud, but do not have cloven hooves. They are unclean for you. Also the swine is unclean for you, because it has cloven hooves, yet it does not chew the cud. You shall not eat their flesh or touch their dead carcass. Simply put, God told them they could only eat mammals that chewed the cud and had a split hoof. If any type of animal protein lacked one of these two things, they were not allowed to be eaten. Horses, they chew the cud, but they don't have a split hoof. So tasajo was not allowed for the Jewish people, right? Animals with paws, they were not allowed. So if you love bear jerky or bear steaks, right? Different things like that. Paws, not, not allowed. Had to have a split hoof and had to chew the, cuff, the, chew the cud. I believe God was wanting them to consider their appetite. Even at mealtime, God was wanting them to think about their father. God was wanting them to think about their holy father. And not just allowing their flesh to rule over them. To not just eat whatever their flesh desired, but to take their desires and bring it before the Lord and bring it before his word and say, Father, what does your word have to say when it has to do with my appetite? They were God's children and God's children are to be ruled by the spirit of God through the word of God, not our flesh or just our desires. And it applies to us today. Our appetite, what we're feeding on. Are we just feeding on whatever we desire? Or do we bring our desires to the Spirit of God and the Word of God? And then we dictate what we consume and what we don't consume. It's interesting because these laws of what you can eat and not eat, it seems like they're almost getting popular once again within Christianity. There are Christians that, in a sense, they're deconstructing their faith and trying to go back to Judaism, or they're trying to get some Judaism and add to the laws. In one of our lunch breaks at the office, we were talking about this whole sect of Christianity, that one of their foundational points is you can eat milk and dairy on a fast. And there's just all sorts of separate things when it comes to eating. Right? We live in Miami. Just try to order a steak at a Cuban restaurant during the Holy Week and watch how people look at you. 
Right? Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. You, you're not allowed to eat red meat during the Holy Week, Passion Week. What is wrong with you? And we make these rules and regulations based on diet, which for us in the New Testament, it's not the case. We'll go through some of these New Testament scriptures so we can apply this today. In Romans 6 verse 14, it tells us, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. We are no longer under the law, especially when it comes to the ceremonial laws. We're not held under those ceremonial laws anymore. In Romans chapter 7, verse 6, it says, But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not the oldness of the letter. We can jump over to Acts chapter 11, and there's, two, there's, there's three chunks of Scripture that really point to no reason for New Testament believers, Christians, to trying to uphold these laws and dietary laws. In Acts chapter 11, Peter, who was a good Jewish boy and a good Jewish man, lived his whole life by these ceremonial laws of what was kosher and what wasn't. And three times in Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11, God is commanding and telling Peter, rise, Pete, kill, and eat. That's what he tells him three times, basically. Rise, Pete, kill, and eat. You could go to Acts 11, verse 6 through 9. He says, when I observed it intently and considered it, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord. Doesn't make any sense. You can't say not so and Lord in the same sentence. For nothing common or unclean at any time has entered my mouth, but the voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. So here the Lord, he's calling Peter to go into the house of a Gentile so that Peter would be preaching to Gentiles and spending time with Gentiles, breaking bread with Gentiles and bringing them over to the Christian faith. Jesus himself in Mark chapter 7 verse 18, he tells us, Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from the outside cannot defile him? Because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. Some Bible versions say declaring all foods as clean. Jesus says our stomach acid burns all the food, thus making it clean. We can turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. And here is our biblical basis for each meal and especially... For us as believers and us in America as believers, we should be giving thanks before every meal. Uh, there are so many that don't have food. So many of our brothers and sisters all over the world that don't have a meal. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 through 5, it says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will 
depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry. I wonder what religion does that. And commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. So if you're really worried and you're self-conscious about eating that unkosher meal, Scripture says to pray over it and receive it with thanksgiving. Say, Lord, thank you for this lobster roll, right? Amen. That's what you're supposed to do. This crab bisque, Lord, thank you for this. Lord, this rack of ribs, Lord, thank you for this. Everything is clean in the eyes of God. We are now New Testament believers. You can go through Romans chapter 14. And Romans chapter 14, what it reveals to us is if we have a brother or sister that is weak in their faith, don't lord it over them. Don't guilt them into going one way or the other. But to love them and honor them by eating the way that they want to eat. Or at least not eating what would cause them to stumble in front of them. Romans 14 verse 1, it says, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. The Bible says that. Verse 3, <laughs> Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. We should not despise him who does not eat. And let him not eat who does not eat. Judge him who eats. For God has received him. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. You jump down to verse 13. It says, Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. I know and I'm convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. This was Paul, a Pharisee of Pharisees. And he's saying, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean. But what are we to do if someone believes that they're honoring the Lord by upholding the old dietary laws, allow them to do so. But now if you're trying to uphold the old dietary laws and you're judging other people or putting other people down for not being exactly as you are, there is where God condemns that. He says, hey, each person to their own master, they're going to fall. Who are you to judge another man's servant? We need to remember Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Which tells us, for by grace you have been saved. Through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
Our eating habits, when it comes to clean and unclean, they don't make us more saved. Nothing makes us more saved. You're either saved or you're not saved. And our works do not add to our salvation. They should be our response to salvation and to so much grace and to so much love. But we are saved through faith in Jesus Christ alone. I believe a more New Testament foundation for us is not to be so concerned with what we're eating, but biblically to be concerned with how much we are eating. And now here's where we'll really step on some toes, right? Deuteronomy 21 verse 20. It says, They shall say to the elders of, this, of his city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. We, we should pray. We joke around, but gluttony is indeed a sin. I hear some pastors trying to rationalize drunkenness and trying to rationalize alcohol within the pulpit and within the priesthood, within the group of pastors, saying pastors don't hammer on gluttony, so why are we still hammering on drunkenness and alcohol? I'm saying to hammer on both of them. We should not be gluttons and we should not be drunkards. Proverbs chapter 23 verse 2 says this, Put a knife to your throat if you are a man given to appetite. He says, hold yourself to a standard if you're a man given to appetite. We can jump back to, and this will be the last verse on this, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5 through 7. And we know that a part of the gift or the fruit of the Holy Spirit is self-control. We should have self-control. And I believe one of the ways we reveal that we're sons and daughters of the king is not by staying away from pork and lobster. It's by having self-control. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, it says, But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. To virtue, knowledge. To knowledge, self-control. To self-control, perseverance. To perseverance, godliness. To godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love, which is agape love. This is our ladder of growth as believers. We should be seeking to add these things in our life. Diligence, then faith, then virtue, then knowledge, then self-control, then perseverance, then godliness, then brotherly kindness, and ultimately that agape love. But, but our self-control, even in our eating habits, all that we do should bring honor and glory to the Lord. So the next time someone starts hammering on you because you're eating pork or selfish, ask them, if they commit gluttony or not. We jump back to Deuteronomy 14, verse 9, and we'll continue to through these laws of clean and unclean a little bit here. Verse 9 and 10, he goes from land mammals to now fowl and birds. He says, These you may eat of all that are in the waters. You may eat all that have fins and scales. And whatever does not have fins and scales, you shall not eat it is unclean for you. So God's law is simple. They're supposed to look at their diet and now say, okay, God, what does your word say? And they could only eat water creatures that had both fins and scales. So no fried catfish because it has fins, but it doesn't have scales and they're slimy, right? 
You can't have clam chowder, no lobster bisque, no lobster ravioli, sear scallops, clams, crabs, oysters, and lobster. If you didn't eat dinner before service, I apologize, right? Definitely be hungry at the end of this. Then he says in verse 11, All clean birds you may eat, but these you shall not eat. The eagle, the vulture, the buzzard. I've never been this hungry, right? The red kite, the falcon, and the kite after their kinds, and every raven after its kind. The ostrich, no ostrich burgers. The short-eared owl, the seagull, and the hawk after their kinds. The little owl, the screeched owl, even the white owl. The jackdaw, the carrion vulture, and the fisher owl. The stork, the heron after its kind, and the, hoopo the hoopoi, and the bat. Also, every creeping thing that flies is unclean for you. They shall not be eaten. You may, however, eat all the clean birds. So the idea of clean and unclean animals goes back before the law being given. In fact, it goes back before the days of Moses to the days of Noah, both in God's instruction to Noah and in Noah's sacrifice unto the Lord. This idea of clean and unclean in Genesis 7 verse 2, God tells Moses to take seven of each clean animal. And then in Genesis 8 verse 20, we see Noah building an altar of sacrifice to the Lord and he took every clean beast and every clean fowl and he offered up burnt offerings on the altar. You see, God did not want them eating predatory birds because they eat the flesh and blood of other animals. He also did not want them to eat scavenger birds because they often feed on the dead both of which are unclean. Eating blood and touching and being around dead things would make them ceremonially unclean. Finally, verse 21, he says, You shall not eat anything that dies of itself. You may give it to the alien who is within your gates, that he may eat it, or you may sell it to a foreigner. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. They were to respect life. And the way they would respect life is by one, not touching anything that was dead. And then two, by not eating anything that contained blood. Back in Leviticus 17 verse 11, it tells us that the life of the flesh is in the blood. And whenever you read through these dietary laws, we think, how in the world does this apply to us today? At least that's what I always think, right? Some people try to point to the health effects for these people, and there's no doubt. We can see the health effects here for the Israelites, especially in ancient times. Pork, shellfish, predatory, and scavenger animals are much more prone to diseases and parasites, and you have to be much more careful and sanitary in how you prepare them. But I believe, and even listening to Joe Foge, I believe there's greater reasons than just the health of the Israelites. We know that God wanted them to care about the foreigner. And if he says, you shouldn't eat of these things, but however, you're allowed to sell it or give it to other aliens, that's not people from Mars, right, but people from other countries, other citizens, you can give it to them, you can give it to foreigners. 
I, I believe we should be looking at that a little bit more closely. In Leviticus 19, God tells us the heart that they should have for foreigners. In Leviticus 19, verse 33 and 34, God tells them, If a stranger dwells with you in your land, you shall not mistreat him. The stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you. And you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So if the Lord knew that this would be dangerous for them, and this would destroy them or damage them, how could they sell this to them in good conscience and yet not be mistreating the strangers and still loving them as they love themselves? You see, I believe God wanted it to be abundantly clear that they were God's kids. He wanted it abundantly clear. Everywhere that they would go, people would know these people are different. Right? How did he start off this section in verse 1? He says, you are the children of the Lord. And now how does he end this section in verse 21? He says it, you are a holy people to the Lord. And all of this is sandwiched in between. You are God's sons and daughters, and you are called to be holy, and this is what I'm calling you to do. They were God's kids, and they needed to be different than the Canaanites and the Gentile world around them. They were to be, that word holy, what does it mean? Set apart. Set apart from the world. Set apart to the Father. And set apart for the Father's service. That's what it means to be holy. We are set apart from the world. We're set apart to our Father. And then we're set apart for the Father's service. As we read earlier that we are, we are His poema. We are His beautiful creation. We are His workmanship created for good works. He has set us apart. We're to be different from this world. We are to be abiding with him. And then we should be out doing good work. And have we considered the weight of being a son or a daughter of the creator of heaven and earth? Have you really sat back and thought about that? What this adoption means for us. I'm so proud of so many within our church that are adopting sons and daughters because it is so biblical and essential to our faith. Each of us, we are adopted into the family of God and we should take time to meditate on this. God was willing to adopt me. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, it says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Again, before we came to Christ, we were enemies of the kingdom. We were enemies of the kingdom. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Lord, our Father, He prepared those adoption papers for us while we were still enemies, while we were still going against Him. The reason the Son had to die was for our possibility of being adopted. Do you sit back and say, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. 
His true son had to die so that we could become sons and daughters. Think about that for a moment. I wouldn't sacrifice any of my kids to die to then be able to adopt another kid. None of us would do that in our right mind. But this is the manner and the depth of the love that God has bestowed on us. He wants to call you his son. He delights to call you his daughter. We can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and we can see what he calls us to as sons and daughters. And for us, it's not dietary laws, but it still has a whole lot to do with our purity and what we are feeding on. What are we feeding on? 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. He says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Verse 17, Therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my son's and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. God's kids stay away from the unclean. This is what he's telling us here in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18. God's kids do not connect themselves to unbelievers in relationships, in marriages, in friendships, in business deals. We're not linking ourselves together with unbelievers because we are God's kids. And he's commanded us, be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you, and I will be a father to you. Do you want to accept that adoption? Do you want to be called a son or a daughter of the Most High? Finally, 1 Peter chapter 1, on this idea of having the creator of heaven and earth adopting us and bringing us into his home. Right? What would you do? What would you be willing to give up if Elon Musk says, hey, I'm willing to adopt you. I'm willing to put you on my inheritance. Right? But the Lord, he's asked us, hey, I want to adopt you. I want to put you on my inheritance. I want you to be sons and daughters of the king, to be this nation of kings and priests. First Peter chapter 1, verse 17. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of of Christ, 
as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Consider, consider your lifestyle. Consider how you're living right now. That this adoption, it was purchased. That's my difficulty with adoption. The, the price is so difficult for me to swallow for us today. I understand it, but it's hard. How much more our spiritual adoption into the family of God? There's such a great price, the precious blood of Christ. How are we conducting ourselves through the time of our stay here? Is it in the fear of God? Is it in the gratitude of the blood of Christ being shed to purchase me, to adopt me, to bring me home? John Trappy says, Ye should therefore do nothing unworthy of such a father. Ye should do nothing unworthy of such a father. John Trapp also quotes Antigonus, who's the son of Philip II of Macedonia. He was being invited to a place where a notable harlot was present. His father, Philip, had already passed away, so he asked the counsel of a Greek philosopher, what should he do? Should he go or should he not go? And the Greek philosopher, he bade him, only remember that he was a king's son and do accordingly. Remember, you are a king's son and do accordingly. Our, our actions, the way we live, do we remember we are sons or daughters of the king and then acting in accordance to respect of our father and honoring him? As God's sons, as God's daughters, as his family, as he wanted the Old Testament Israelites to consider their appetite and what they were feeding on, I believe he wants us to consider our appetite and what are we feeding on spiritually. He did not want them eating on flesh that was fed by rubbish. He did not want them eating flesh that was just feeding on flesh. And in the same way, God doesn't want his sons and daughters to just feed their fleshly lusts and the rubbish of this world. He wants us feeding on the word of God. He wants us feeding on holy things. And as God also wanted his sons and daughters to demonstrate that they were God's kids by their diet in the presence of the Gentiles, God wants his sons, his daughters today to demonstrate that we are God's kids by our diet in the presence of the Gentiles today. When the people around you, when they're feeding on the rubbish of this world, are you right there with them? Or would you be as that Old Testament Israelite saying, I'm sorry, man, I can't eat that pork. Those ribs, they look good, but I can't eat them. I'm not allowed to eat them. I'm not called to eat them. I am a son of the Most High. Imagine every time they would invite or try to do a, well, they wouldn't eat, they wouldn't break bread with unbelievers, but just spending time with Gentiles. Hey, what do you like to eat? What's your favorite food? Yeah, I don't eat any of those things. Why don't you eat any of those things? You've never had a lobster roll? Never had a lobster tail? It's like the most delicious surf and turf. You never had that before? No, because I am a son or a daughter of the king. Right? It's a great question for ourselves tonight. Are you a part of the family of God? Do you know that you know that you're a part of the family of God? Have you been adopted by the precious blood of Jesus Christ into the family of God and now you are a son or daughter of the Lord of all creation? Is that you? If so, what are we feeding on and how do we demonstrate that we are different 
than the world around us and that we indeed are sons and daughters of the living God. I believe we show that we are different by three things. Number one, we show that we are different by our purity. By our purity. Our speech. What we listen to. What we watch. Our sexual conduct, right? Can we say it is pure? Our speech, all over the New Testament, it says that our speech should be seasoned with salt. Our speech should not have anything profane, no coarse jesting, no nasty jokes. Our speech should be holy as our Father is holy. Can people around us see our purity? The next way that we demonstrate that we are different, Jesus tells us, it's by our love that they will know that we are his disciples. And that love is first demonstrated to God the Father, then it's demonstrated to the church, the body of Christ, and then it's demonstrated to the, to the unbelievers outside. Are we demonstrating that great love? And then finally, we show that we are different by our priorities. Our priorities. Do your priorities look different than the unbelievers around you? Do your Sundays look like just like the Sundays of the unbelievers around you? Your spending habits, do they look exactly the same? Or is there a continual church attendance because it is a priority in your life? Is there service unto the Lord because it's a priority in your life? I always enjoy going on missions trips, but I know so many within the church, it's a testimony to the people they go and they visit, but then it's a testimony to their coworkers. Because they got to apply and ask for time off. And then their coworkers say, you're going on vacation? No, I'm going to sleep four hours a night for the next ten days. What? And sleep with a bunch of strangers on bunk beds. What? What's wrong with you? But this is a priority to me. It's serving the Lord. Serving his people. Going to the uttermost and loving others. How are we showing that we are different by our purity, our love, and our priorities? Remember that. Finally, at the end of this verse, he says, You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. David Guzik, he tells us, many other commentators state this as well, that this was in a common pagan fertility ritual. If they wanted their field to grow, they believed that you'd get a baby goat, you'd take the milk of that mother, you'd boil it in it, and then you'd spread this milk around the field, and it would praise some God, and they would add more food behind it. This would also further separate the Israelites from the nations around them and protect them from having easy fellowship with the Gentiles. Rabbis today, they've taken this way out of context and have robbed so many people of the joy and pleasure of eating a cheeseburger. Because they've taken this verse out of context. They take it to such an extreme that milk and meat are not allowed at the same table for a meal. Milk and meat in Israel, they're not allowed. If it's a kosher restaurant, they're not allowed in the same restaurant. It's not allowed to be at the same menu at the same time. When on this last trip to Israel, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, pray for Israel. Our last trip to Israel, Amanda and I and even David, we got there early. So we're on our way to pick up the team from the airport. So we say, let's stop for lunch and let's stop for coffee. So we stop at Aroma. It's a great coffee shop. They got good coffee. And all over Israel, they have this magical slushy coffee. Never had it anywhere in the States. But they have this magical slushy coffee and Aroma gives you a little chocolate every time you order coffee. 
right? So it's great. It's a bargain, but I won't get one free, right? But I'm looking at the menu, and there's no real protein on the menu. For me, real protein has to be chicken or meat. Fish doesn't count as real protein to me, right? Amanda's looking at me, tuna fish. I'm like, that's not real protein. So I'm not really thinking about it. I go next door, and there's an amazing shawarma shop. So we order shawarma, we order falafel, and then we're standing outside this like outdoor mall. I got my shawarma bag here, and I'm sipping on my coffee slushy, relaxing, excited. I'm in Israel. We're getting ready to pick up the team. I'm so happy. All of a sudden, our tour guide comes out, freaking out, looking at me. He's telling me to get on the bus right away. I'm like, bro, what's wrong with you, right? What's going on? And he looks at me and says, you're not being kosher right now, and everybody's staring at you. Because you got meat in one bag and you're drinking milk in the other cup, right? And this is what's happening here, offending people. You see, rabbis insist that the meat in your hamburger may have come from the calf of a cow that gave milk for the cheese of the cheese on your cheeseburger. And when you eat this cheeseburger, once it hits your stomach, it's going to boil together and violate this command. This is where they get this. In Israel, on the buffets that we would have at breakfast, there'd be only fish. There wouldn't be any type of meat for breakfast because there's milk for the cereal and half and half for the coffee. And if after dinner you want what is only right, which is a good cup of coffee after dinner, you're not allowed to have half and half because that would have dairy with the meat. So you got to find a way to smuggle in your half and half to drink it together with your coffee after the meal. Finally, verse 22, we finish up here these last couple of verses. He says, you shall truly tithe all the increase of your grain that the field produces year by year. And here I believe we see that God knows our sinful nature and he's writing to the details of it. He's like, truly, for real. For real, for real, you need to tithe all the increase of your grain that the field produces year by year. Seriously, you are to give me 10% of all your increase. That's after you take the seeds to replicate the field. You need to tithe 10%. God says, hey, I bring you the rain. I bring you the fruit. I bring you the harvest. I give you 90%. Just give me back this 10%. And then what does he desire? Does God just want money? Is God just this investment scheme? No. Verse 23. And you shall eat before the Lord your God. In the place where he chooses to make his name abide. The tithe of your grain and your new wine and your oil. Of the firstborn of your herds and your flocks. That you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. Our God's not broke. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Our God's not broke. Don't let any false teacher, false prophet tell you that. If they say the ministry is going to close, if you don't tithe, let it close, right? Just let it shut down. God has this law of tithing for two main reasons. Number one, he wanted fellowship with his people. And number two, he wanted his people to fear him. He says, you shall eat before the Lord your God. And one of the sacrifices, you would sit down and have fellowship near the Lord. You were eating that meal with the Lord your God. Like any good father. What does he desire? Does he desire the money from his kids? No, he just desires fellowship with his kids. Secondly, it was to fear him. God wanted to teach his sons and daughters to respect him and give him reverence 
always. Verse 24, our God, he's also practical. He's not a harsh father. But if the journey is too long for you, so that you are not able to carry the tithe, or if the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far from you, when the Lord your God has blessed you, then you shall exchange it, that's that 10%, you should exchange it for money, then take the money in your hand, go to the place which the Lord your God chooses, and then you shall spend that money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen or sheep or wine or similar drink, for whatever your heart desires, and then you shall eat therefore before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your household. You shall not forsake the Levite who is within your gates, for he has no part nor inheritance with you. So if that 10% was just too much to carry on a journey to wherever the tabernacle was located, God says, okay, sell it, take that money, come to the tabernacle, then near the tabernacle, buy whatever you want to sacrifice and give back to the Lord, and now have fellowship with me there with whatever you choose to bring. And remember the Levites. The Levites, they eat based on the tithe of the people. Then verse 28 and 29, it says, At the end of every third year, you shall bring out the tithe of your produce of that year and store it up within your gates. And the Levite, because he has no portion nor inheritance with you, and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates may come and eat and be satisfied, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. The Lord, he had different tithes. Scholars believe there's three different tithes or there's one tithe that they would split three different ways. But this tithe was to care for the Levite, care for the stranger, the orphan, and the widow. But all of this was done so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. Again, the Lord's commands, the Lord's laws, it's not to burden his people. It's not to put a weight on them. It's that he would bless us. Is that we would acknowledge him. That we would put him first. And then the Lord is going to meet with us there. Now it's interesting because explicitly in the New Testament. We don't see a demand for a 10% tithe. However we know in Hebrews chapter 7. You can just write it down for the sake of time. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 5 through 9 tells us that Abraham. Before this Mosaic law, before the law, he tithed a 10% to the Lord. So for us as New Testament believers, I believe the way we should see it is 10% is just a baseline. And then if, if we are able to give more, then you should give more. We know that our Lord, he loves in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 a generous and a joyful giver. That's what the Lord is looking for. He's not looking for someone that he has to fight and wrestle and twist their arm to give to him. No, he loves those who are generous, those who are cheerful, those who are excited to give. So who are we? Are we asking what's the littlest amount I can give and still be biblical? 
Or are we saying, Lord, I have so much to be grateful for and thankful for. Lord, I want to give all of this to you. And we should know, just as our priorities in time reveal our love for the Lord, our priorities in our finances also reveal how much we love the Lord our God. It was weird. The other day I was listening to the radio and I was on the radio and I mentioned how we should, and it's true. We should look at our Amazon order history and then look at how much we've been donating to good charity and the work of the Lord, right? And what does it look like? And I'm trying to work on it, but mine isn't perfect either. Are we giving into these spiritual things? One last verse on this, Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, verse 11. Jesus here, he says, Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the un righteous mammon which is money who will commit to your trust the true riches and if you have not been faithful in what is another man's who will give you what is your own no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other you cannot serve God and mammon So for us, the way we should see money, it's a tool to honor the Lord. And it belongs to the Lord as our whole life, if we are biblical, is a living sacrifice. My whole life belongs to Him. All my time belongs to Him. My wallet, my bank account belongs to Him. So are we giving with a grateful heart, a happy heart, a joyous heart? And perhaps you're here... Again, listening to a teaching from Joe Foge, if you make $10,000 a year, I mean, maybe what you need to tithe is 10% of your time and not 10% of your money because then you're going to be coming for money counseling to the church, right? Got to be wise about it. We need to see where we're at with the Lord and say, Lord, this is what I want to give you. This is what I want to give you and doing it out of a joyful and cheerful heart. Worship team, if you can come up. Family, just remember this. How are we demonstrating to the world around us that we are God's kids? How, how are they seeing that? How are they seeing it? Through our words, through our actions, through our speech, or through our lifestyle? Are we revealing how different we are by our purity, our love, and our priorities? And I'll just encourage you, sometimes the enemy lies to us and tells us, that's it, you've blown your witness. You were at work and a four-letter word split out. You did this and now everybody knows about it. And I said, you blew your witness. I encourage you, just go in and apologize to those unbelievers. You go to those unbelievers and you say, hey, I apologize for doing this. I apologize for doing that. That was not acting as I should act. I represent Jesus Christ. I'm one of God's kids. Would you forgive me for doing that? Then you're right back on track. You're confessing your sins one to another. You're confessing them to the Lord, and you're right back on track. None of us are perfect, but we should have those priorities in order, that love in order, and that purity in order. So, Lord, we love you, God. And, Lord, we we thank you for your word. We love because you first loved us, Lord. Lord, and if someone tonight needs to be reminded of just how much you love them, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would flood their heart, Lord, with just a reminder of the depth of the love and the riches that you have for them, Lord. 
Again, help us to be mindful, Father, just about the love you have for us. Who are we that we should be called sons and daughters? Lord, what a great adoption by the purchase and the price of the blood of your only begotten Son. Lord, help us to meditate on these things, God. And Lord, just help us. Help us as we go about each day, Lord, in this battle, Lord, in this battle against our flesh, in the battle against the world, and the battle against temptation. Help us to abide in you, Jesus. So Lord, we just love you. Jesus, we thank you so much for your goodness. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, let's all stand and we'll close in worship. If you need